0: Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. This parallel session from the 2018 PNG update focuses on governance and development. The presenters discuss cultivating a participatory approach to governance in PNG, understanding youth perceptions of governance, the deep determinants of district development in PNG, as well as governance reform, leadership and support in PNG. Keep listening to find out more.
1: Let us uh begin, because lost time is never made up. We, there's a few announcements, there are forms available, uh, where you have to fill in at the end of the session. Uh, The second housekeeping matter is that we have another session coming here at 3.30. And so, we have to make sure we finish on time and do not disadvantage the next uh, session. And that means that uh, each uh, presenter has 15 minutes to present. And there are five uh, papers to be presented in this session on governance. Uh, My name is Vincent Malaibek, and I work at UPNG. And so, I hope we can uh, get through this uh, on time. And if you save time, you gain at the end by asking questions. If you don't manage it, then if there are five minutes left, then there will be only one question. So I need your cooperation for us to get through this session. Uh, the, the first uh, paper is to be presented by Paul Kelly and he's a research fellow at the Latrobe University. Please make my comment. Paul Kelly.
2: Okay, uh, good afternoon everybody. Um, can you hear me up at the back? Yeah? Um, my name is Paul Kelly, and I'm working with my colleagues here, uh, Barbara and Dorothy, um, for Latrobe University. And we are doing uh, various uh, items of research in support of the broader um, PNG-Australia partnership. And today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, participatory approach to this uh, idea of governance. Um, So in in terms of governance, I think we've got to govern the time as well. So that's going to be a balance between our friend, Vincent, who is governing the time, and our participants, who may go over. And in a sense, we're going to talk about that negotiation between governing and participating. Um, there's There's a lot of discussion that these two items are in conflict. And I think what we want to say today is that they are necessarily connected and part of each other. Who is governing? Who is participating? And how that happens? And we'll show you uh, how that works in our slides. To start with, I just want to frame the research very broadly, and I won't mention this again. So there's an idea in development, uh, which some uh, commentators have called Big D development. This is about infrastructure. It's about macroeconomics. It's about charts and statistics and indicators of national levels and international levels. But there's also small d development. And that is much more about communities, practices, experiences. It's very people-centered. So we would like to apply this to governance. There is a big G governance, which is about policy, which is about uh, governmental systems. But there is also a small g governance, which is micro-interactions between people and communities and churches and roads and bridges and so forth, and how that works out in practice. And the only way to learn about small-g governance is to listen to people, um, to listen to their experiences, to listen to their challenges, but not only their challenges, also their successes. A lot of the people we talk to in our research had a lot of successes in finding solutions to problems. Uh, we also have to listen to their expertise. There's a huge array of expertise in, in PNG, PNG people who we need to listen better to. So what did we do? We started off with a scoping exercise, and that's what we'll talk about today. This research we consider as not highly developed. It's the first stage, the first year of scoping out a research project for the future. And we've used focus groups and workshops to talk to three broad Groups of stakeholders. We talked to youth groups, which Barbara will talk about a little bit later. We talked to women in business, which Dorothy will talk about in a moment. And we talked to professionals in the um, aid sector and the public sector. So what did we ask them? If we wanted to listen to them, what did we ask them? Well, the very first question back in July last year was... (laughs) how do you even say governance in Tok Pisin? And this produced a rich conversation talking about organising and communities and better lives and so forth. Diverse interpretations of governance. We asked about how people rank governance effectiveness in provinces. Is one province doing well? Is another not doing well? This, earlier today we heard about Gulf and East New Britain and it was very interesting about the healthcare There, because multiple groups of people ranked East New Britain highly in terms of their governance systems, and Gulf is not doing so well. I mean, I, I could talk a lot about that, but that's not the main aim today. And we also talked to the women in business about their business journey. We didn't ask them about particular problems, we asked them in a qualitative sense to tell us about their business journey how did they start, what challenges they faced, what successes they had. And I would like to invite Dorothy to come up just to talk a little bit about the different groups we talked to for the women in business side of the work. There were, there were different groups which Dorothy will explain a bit and I'll ask her a few questions as we go.
3: Abinu Nolgeta. Um, thanks, Paul. Uh, it's been a privilege to be uh, part of the Latrobe team. I actually fell into the... Uh, research group more by coincidence than by um, choice, but I'm glad to be part of the team because I think for the first time, uh, you know, someone like me from a group that's normally studied is part of uh, the investigative process. So uh, I'm a market Mary myself. If you go to any of the two markets in Port Moresby, I don't look like one. People sometimes judge me by the way I look, but I have two stalls and I sell every day. Um, so I am part of the PNG uh, Market Mamas uh, Entrepreneurial Association. We have about 80 members in our group, and we started our association out of a need to survive. No one came and organized us to um, organize ourselves. We did it out of our own necessity. So when you look at the different women that are part of the association, each and every one of them are in small business of buying and selling or repackaging basically to be able to take care of their basic needs. That's the bottom line. So when the questions were Uh, discussed around whether or not we should ask the question of um, what do you mean by governance? Um, Me personally, I felt that that was very directive uh, and it's best to maybe just give space and opportunity for people like myself and my other sisters to be able to express without fear or favor about what was going on in their lives. So of the 80 women that uh, Uh, were invited to participate. 22 um, came to the consultation and we just naturally fell into three groups where one group was more, uh, I would say more progressive, they'd already reached a stage in their life where they were um, contributing from their own income to support other women. And then you had the much larger group, which I... Uh, fall into and a lot of the issues that uh, we were facing were number one not because we needed money from government to be able to support ourselves but we needed resources to be able to comply with a lot of the government uh, compliance needs like taxation, uh, customs, how to bring in plastics, how to bring in containers. Um, we had issues around space. We also had issues around security and violence. Um, if you look around what must be now, how do you think the majority of the people are surviving? It's amazing. It's really amazing that people are able to survive in the chaos that you see around you. And I'm a clear example of that. If I, as a market mirror, am able to look after 22 people, to employ 22 people i am just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of a small and medium sized business enterprise i started off with just one basket going from office to office now i have two stalls my story is the same as eighty of the other women that are part of the association we are no we are no more special than the rest of png but the fo- Despite the fact that the focus of the first consultations uh, were on uh, urban women, um, some, some of the urban women cross between rural and urban settings. Me, in particular, I live in two worlds. I'm a farmer, and I'm also, but I need to sell my produce. So I go in between the two, and I realize that my issues are exactly the same as. Uh, those who go to lot sixty and buy products there and and uh, break up decant and resell we all have very very similar issues and when we when we were talking among ourselves with very limited guidance but we were given space, a lot of us were talking about how can you know we've got this passion and how can we continue to do what we're doing uh, and what What do we need out there for us to be able to carry on? And most of us came to the same conclusions. Number one is, as soon as you try to move from being a market Mary or a table mama to the next level, you are immediately hit with a lot of the compliances that are required by government. We have to pay the same tax as a big company. We don't get tax concessions. Big companies get tax concessions. We have to deal with uh, catching the bus. We have to deal with uh, security because we, we have to pack up by a certain time during the day and get onto the bus and go home. So our issues, uh, they are, if they are magnified, are very, very similar to what a very big company who has tax concessions would be going through. But the difference is that we get absolutely no support. But we're not saying that we have to wait for someone to come and tell us, okay, it's, it's okay now for you to do business. I think the environment, you know, we live in a free market economy, so the environment, the the nature of the way we are governed allows us to be able to, uh, to do business. But some of the conditionalities that... Um, Enable us to progress need to be uh, to to be to be talked about. Of the 80 women that w- that I am part of, I can guarantee you that each and every one of them takes care of their family plus quite a number of other people that are part of their network behind them. So when questions are raised and we're discussing about um, you know what the issues are and how do we move forward we're always thinking about ourselves. And it may sound selfish, but it's about where we sit in and how we look upwards and sideways about uh, our own survival and the rules that govern us to be able to, to manage our little businesses. Thank you.
2: I think you've heard the tip of the iceberg of one very rich story there and we have to learn how to listen. When Dorothy talks about ladies finding money for bus fares to get to their venues, this does not show up in international standardized governance indicators. We need to talk to people and listen to them. I've got a couple of minutes left. Thank you very much for that, Dorothy. It's, It's really passionate and important. Um, we did talk to the aid sector and public sector workers, some of the people we work with. And just a few of the, the things they talked about, just some examples here. So some of the project managers were very in need of uh, criteria of governance to measure and assess governance. That group of people, there. Opinions of governance were very different to Dorothy's. The, the market marries, were not looking for criteria to assess governance. So what we have is a translation process between different stakeholder groups. And we as researchers have to learn to listen to that and see how to get people to work together. A lot of talk about coordination and collaboration this morning. Um, there was also the idea that governance is not just what government does, which was also mentioned this morning. So... In in one area, people put a plant down and this calls people to a meeting to discuss differences. This is a a customary way of organizing and there are many different ways between different cultural groups but also between different professional groups, policy makers, researchers, project planners and so forth. So those interfaces need to be looked at. Okay, so there's a few discussion points just before I finish. Um, The three circles here came out in a meeting after our focus groups, and I think it was Dorothy's idea. One circle is government. This is a big part of governance, formal government, policies, uh, structures. Uh, We heard a lot about the kind of multi-level structure, the, the national level, the provincial level, down to the ward level and so forth. This is one of the circles. Churches and their governance structures are another And communities and what you might call the traditional structures and ways of governing and organising is another. I actually believe there's hundreds of these circles, but that's just three. So is governance more than government? We would argue yes, and it's important to look at other actors. Does governance depend on your position in those circles? We would argue yes, whether you're a man or a woman. or you are a market mayor or a project planner or a youth uh, uh, person in a university, for example? Do people assess governance with different criteria? Yes. And can listening to people help us understand them, but also help them to engage with governance processes, to listen and to bring them in? That's very important. And the last slide, so the participation in the governance is almost in line here. It's two questions for you. This is very early research. We would appreciate any feedback you have now or after the session today, or we can share our emails with you. If you, have, if you know of other groups who it would be useful for us or you to talk to that we could support, please get in touch. We need to know who to talk to next to extend this and how we can learn as academics, as technical governance or development people, uh, as researchers to, to listen better. So thank you very much and thank you especially to Dorothy. You. Are you going
1: to take questions no. Later? no. as part of this governance, I'll take questions in the end so that we get through all the papers. Thank you Paul and uh, Launa. The next uh, paper will be by um, Barbara Thomas, uh, who has participated in uh, most of the PNG updates. Uh, Welcome, Barbara. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, Good afternoon.
4: Hope you all are well. Uh, This afternoon I'd be speaking a bit on some of the components of uh, the research that uh, Paul and Dorothy talked about earlier on. um, It was a really, governance, governance is a really big word and it means different things to many different people. And um, when I was approached to be involved in uh, this uh, research activity, I thought to myself, hmm, Interesting they want to engage youth voices and youth perspectives to understand what this, what this big word means. And I, I come from a background of working in the youth space, but more so in the formal spaces, like working with young people in uh, high schools or in universities. So I was really keen to get outside of the spaces that I was working in and especially engage with young people outside the formal education um, system to find out what they thought governance was, because I, too, was also trying to see or guess or try to understand, have a better understanding of what that word governance was. That when I, um, Paul talked about the big G governance and the small G governance and how there's a there's a difference in the way we approach understanding these two different types of governance. So, this afternoon, my um, presentation, is it's, it's quite brief, but... One forefront some of the voices or perceptions of young people uh, uh, and their ideas of that, but also talk a bit about some of the emerging uh, ideas that young people felt or uh, identified with governance. So, the approach we took a very participatory approach to governance, and uh, our idea was to facilitate a safe space, a safe environment where young people could come and express their thoughts without. Intimidation or fear, um, and we wanted to allow the conversations to be very organic. So, as much as possible, I didn't, I did not want to influence my worldview of what I thought governance was onto the young people. I wanted them to express what they thought, because the idea was that they were the experts of their con, of, of their lived environment. So they they all had experiences of it, and I wanted to hear what they thought or how they experience governance in that way. And so the conversations were very organic and they led. Uh, we had two conversations, one in Formosby and one in Lane. And uh, we involved eight youth groups um, and 46 young people attended. The interesting thing was the conversation was very rich. We had uh, almost 30% of the uh, participants to be rural-based, so young people from Nawa'i, uh, mostly, and western province, so a few rural youth participated in it, but then we had uh, 67 of the participants were urban youth. Uh, some were students, so if you can see, in the, there's a good mix, so 30% of them were, uh, were students, so from high school and universities. Another thirty percent were working. Another thirty-seven uh, percent were young people who were self-employed. Now, I'd like to say self-employed because all of these young people, despite not being engaged in the formal employment, were doing something to to have an income. Either it was a table market, or it was selling peanuts, or doing something. They were actually generating some sort of an income to uh, sustain their livelihoods. So this. I'm showing this, but, but one of the challenges, or one of the one of the things was there wasn't a lot of women. Thirty percent of the participants were women. I'm showing you this just to show that this ensured a very rich conversation, and both uh, at both uh, uh, conversations. I like to say conversations because it was say like, "What do you think?" Okay, you start story. So we asked, "What do you think governance means?" want to What are some of your experiences of governance? Two very big, broad questions. In labor life, okay, hold up. Let's take a step back. And um, governance is a really big word and we feel a bit intimidated by the word. So we want to start by defining why are youth important? Why we think youth are important? Can we start with that? And then we'll talk towards that topic? And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. And then, one interesting thing in both Botmosri and Lei, they said, okay, when we talk about governance, we sometimes get frustrated because of the challenges and the realities that we think of it. So, we'd like to talk about the challenges, but we as young people, what we think needs to be done, and what we think we can do to approach these challenges of governance. And that was something that they themselves led in the conversation. So some of the reflections of young people, you know, one young woman in uh, in Moresby said, "I think governance is something to do with leadership and how leaders should manage uh, manage things that would bring development for people and for the country." Another in Hay talked about why are basic services not reaching people? I have to carry my coffee bag and walk half a day to the nearest road. That's my experience of governance. And then another young person, before defining what and trying to understand governance, he talked about young people and said, we have the community strength. When physical intensive work needs to be done, it is the young people who are dependent upon to show that the responsibility. Mm-hmm. Young people's involvement in the community as governance. So when they talked about governance, they talked about service delivery. Governance as politics. Governance as leadership. Governance as unsafe communities. Governance as gender-based violence. Governance is the drug and alcohol abuse in the communities. Governance as the lack of education and employment opportunities. And throughout the conversation, there are two emerging themes that were common amongst young people in. Both and Gorokan, that they constantly talked about. The first one was leadership. Leadership. We hear that a lot, leadership. And they talked about the need for accountability and transparency. The second one was inclusive spaces for participation. And that was very loud at both conversations. In leadership, they They talked about how local challenges to good governance were directly related to weak leadership. And some of the young people reflected that systems and uh, in the communities or structures that used to govern behaviors or that helped to bring community together was missing. And a a lot of them said that it might be because of the nature of political leadership and how before in our communities where the good of the community was at the heart of every decision, that now it's more individualistic thinking, and then how we've sort of lost our values as a people in thinking about community to more personal gain. And they talked about how, as a generation, that if some of the approaches to the governance challenges were to approach that, it needed to come away from that perspective of, leadership as an individual that to back to the communal where the community's needs was always at the heart and the and centre of that. That was interesting. But they also commented about the important role churches uh, played in the community in in promoting community cohesion at the community level. And especially in providing safe spaces, alternative spaces where uh, that could bring community together. The other one that was very um, that young people talked a lot about was inclusive spaces for participation. There was a young boy who was talking about how, when election year rolls by, all the candidates will engage the youth because, essentially, they hold the power to push their campaigns. They usually promise to address, he said, our needs, but this really happens. And and when they get into power, they forget about us. And it's It's not new. It's like we just came out of the uh, the elections last year, and I had the opportunity to be an election observer as well. And I saw how we like to think how why are we so ignorant? You know why are people selling their votes and why are people not taking the process seriously? And these are people they said, "Oh." Last election, that MP, he told us that once he got in, he will build a, you know, he will build a center. He will engage us, you know, immediately engage us, and he doesn't. So um, the standard is that, you know, we're taken for granted. We're not important. We're just only a means to an end. So let's take advantage of this period. Let's make as much money as we can. Let's, you know, drink as much beer as we can. Let's go out and take advantage. And who cares about the process? Despite, you know, youth being largely absent from formal governance processes, they are cutting out their spaces and shaping out their governance systems. So there's two phases to it. Could be negative spaces, negative ways of mobilizing, and there could be positive ways of mobilizing. And in this research, like then, people talk about how they themselves were creating their own opportunities. Um, there was this one example in LAI. So the former member for LAI uh, had established a national youth council, a, 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 a district youth council and really actively engaged them. So the young people felt important and the ideas that they were suggesting, it was happening and there were lots of activities happening in the community. Whereas across in Nowa, just an, hour, an hour's drive away, Young people there did not have that similar platform. And the local, um, where 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 youth voices and youth participation wasn't as prioritized and also it wasn't as respected as it was in Leng. So they felt frustrated when they saw their friends, distant relatives in Leng having the type of opportunities they have and them not having it. But despite this challenge, and despite the challenge of continu- continuously being pushed back, what they did was the local youth theater that mobilized the young people, they contributed money, and they built their own youth center on one of the land, which is amazing. And they did their own things just to show that, okay, if we don't get that recognition, let's create it for ourselves. Let's create our own oppo- opportunities for it. Let's not sit and comp- complain. It was suggested also that gender and social inclusion should not be considered as an afterthought. So, uh, a couple of young women were in the group and they talked about their experiences of um, how different interventions in the community, uh, like church um, interventions, youth groups, or uh, there was this one organization that was part of this consultation, it's called All of Law. It's an amazing organization that works with young people. Uh, to help young people who have not had formal education, have the opportunity to access uh, a, a basic certificate in youth work experience, and then it gives, helps them to give them grants in the communities. And so these young people said that um, when where they had no opportunity um, to be able to uh, realize their potential and how much of a difference they could make in the community, or there were no formal spaces, there were other other institutions, other organizations that were stepping in to do that. Was, well, I think uh, one of the main points that young people in Broadway and in have talked a lot about was creating more safe spaces. Um, and I must acknowledge that there are you know, safe spaces in like, uh, like the All For Youth organization, the Voicing, um, I'm part of that. Um, in churches, in church youth networks, that are, they are nice, uh, they are spaces that nurture and help to build young people. Unfortunately, there are not many spaces like that. Um, unfortunately, there are not too many formal spaces like that. And unfortunately, many of our leaders do not see the importance of these spaces or supporting these spaces, very few. Uh, you may have noticed that just recently the National Youth Council has been doing a review of the youth policy and um, very few leaders have responded and said, I, I had sponsor and I'll organize a youth discussion to involve that. Governor Diffo was one, they had a really big one in Northern or province. We can talk a lot about youth issues or women's issues, there can be policies and plans that are put in there but if there's no leadership, political will or funding to support that then all these things should just be <coughs> words with no power and impact. So there is a need, although that is not ex- happening, I think the important thing that to read to, that this research show that the resilience of young people in creating their own spaces, they're not waiting for the opportunities, but they are creating the opportunities for themselves. So what they ask for is that they want to be recognized as an important within in the community. They want to share their experiences of governance and perspectives of what they think needs or what they're doing to be to be done to address governance challenges. They want to connect their directive pr- perspectives on how they think change can happen into the areas of decision-making, and they want to build networks with other young people. They want to work with different um, groups who share common interests in, approach in, in approaching these challenges. To, to lead to local solutions, to work together to build those solutions. And time's up. But as my colleague Paul had um, uh, commented earlier, we're still developing the approach, and we'd, this research was just done in two months in January and February of the year. Uh, and uh, there were a lot of limitations, as in um, the demographics that we worked in, lay and Potmosby, and within our own networks. So we'd really like to see if there's any of you in the audience who has a youth group or a youth network and would like to see how you could engage and participate in this research. Just let us know, we'll be available after. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Barbara. The next presenter is Terence Wood, who is a research fellow at the Development Policy Center at a Thank you, Terence. He was the one who presented the LF team thing last year. I was also percentage of presenting the families here, there is no reason. <laughs>
5: so I can't see the uh, screen, um, which is my presentation. Is it on the screen? Oh. it's on the screen? Gotcha. Yeah. Thank Put you. it up from there. So the bad news is that I'm not here to speak about elections today. In fact, I'm not even here to speak about governance. So I'm not entirely sure why I'm in this session. The good news is, though, that I am here to speak about development. So an equally complex and confusing term. And if you're to believe the slide behind me, uh, I'm here to speak about development with a capital D. So let's see what I have to say. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start by introducing you to what I think is a really intriguing fact. And that is just how much levels of uh, important aspects of development vary between different parts of Papua New Guinea. Then I'm going to appeal to some of the international literature from development economics to see if we can't possibly find explanations for that variation. Then I'm going to take you through some of my data analysis in which I test some competing explanations to see if we can't come up with some provisional facts about just why development Varies so much between different parts of Papua New Guinea. Uh, Before I go any further, I want to emphasise three points. First, I'm speaking about development in rural parts of Papua New Guinea. For data reasons, uh, I've excluded Ley and Port Moresby from this analysis. Secondly, um, all my findings today are preliminary. There's still a lot more work to be done in this area. And thirdly, even though I keep referring to me and I, I am actually working as part of a team. I'm working with two other academics uh, from Australia and New Zealand, Colin Filer and John Frankel. So if I say anything stupid today, you're welcome to blame me. But if I have anything uh, intelligent to say today, I have to share some of the credit with my co-authors. First up. What do I mean when I say that important aspects of development vary to an incredible degree between different parts of Papua New Guinea? But w- what I've got behind me or over there on the chart uh, is a chart which plots under-5 mortality rates and each line on the chart is uh, a different district in Papua New Guinea. The data are from uh, about the year 2000, so they're quite old, but they're still fit to illustrate an important fact. And this is that there's an incredible variation in under 5 mortality between different parts of Papua New Guinea. So if we look at Meniyama, which is the district with the highest under 5 mortality rate, at the turn of the millennium, about one child in every four was dying before their fifth birthday in Meniama. On the other hand, if we look at the other end of the chart, we see Kundiawa, where the under 5 mortality rate was only about a tenth of that which it is in Menyama. All the other bars are other districts. I haven't put names on them, but what you can see, if you trace your gaze across the chart, is the variation. Uh, Meniyama, neither Menyama or Kundiara outliers. Uh, there are districts that fit everywhere along the spectrum between the two of them. So that's a remarkable difference in a crucial aspect of health, a remarkable degree of variation between different parts of Papua New Guinea. Interestingly, that same variation uh, or similar degrees of variation can be found when we just look within individual provinces. So here we've got the separate districts within Medang province, and what we see here is that the under five mortality rate in middle Ramu is nearly three times as high as the under five mortality rate in Medang. And you might say, oh, well, but Medang's a city. Things are going to be better there. Well, then have a look at Sumkar. The under, under five mortality rate in Middle Ramu is still more than twice that which it is in Sumkar. And those of you who are from Medang will know that Medang, Sumkar, and Middle Ramu all share borders. They're all adjacent districts. They're right next to each other. And yet we see, see under five mortality rates varying to a, a significant degree between the three of them. Thus far, I've talked about under five mortality, uh, but if I had more time, I could show you similar charts of things such as enrolment rates, education, or even estimates of poverty. In almost all important aspects of development, we see an incredible degree of variation between different parts of Papua New Guinea. And that begs the question, of course why does this variation occur? It's an interesting, uh, potentially, it's an interesting practical. Question: Because if we find districts that are overperforming or doing very, well, doing very well on particular measures, we might be able to learn from their success and potentially take lessons and apply them to other parts of the country which aren't performing as well. It's also an interesting academic question, though, and that's what I'm going to speak to a bit today, because there's a very large literature in development economics which tries to study differences between countries and come up up with explanations for differing levels of development. What we can do here though, given that we've got one country with all of this diversity and all this variation, is we can actually look within uh, a single country and see whether whether any of the explanations that come from this cross-country literature uh, are valid at all when it comes to explain the differences between districts in Papua New Guinea. So some of the explanations that emerge from the international literature, uh, things uh, like uh, being rich in natural resources, uh, that's a potentially plausible explanation for being more developed or perhaps even less developed. Another key finding that emerges from quite a lot of international studies is unfavorable geography as an impediment to ge- development. So if there's problems with the geography uh, in the country, maybe that will stop the country from developing. Another uh, strand of research has looked at colonial histories. Uh, So, different countries have had different colonial experiences, and often those differences can be found reflected in different levels of development in this current point in time. Uh, In the case of Papua New Guinea, well, it's all just one country, uh, but different parts of Papua New Guinea had very different experiences of the colonial epoch. There were two different countries involved, or three different countries involved in the governance of Papua New Guinea when it was a colony. There were uh, differences in times of first contact with the European powers. Some parts of Papua New Guinea have a much longer history of engagement with colonial states than other parts of Papua New Guinea. Clausibly that might have an effect on development. And also, if you look at differences between different parts of Papua New Guinea, you find that some parts were much more heavily influenced by the church during the colonial era than other were, other parts were. Clausibly that might have an influence on different levels of development between different parts of the country. Then, another possible explanation for different levels of development is pre-colonial history. In particular, cultural practices from pre-colonial history and the effect that these practices have on the ability of different parts of the country to coordinate and cooperate in a way that's necessary to run school systems or to run health systems or to bring about other development dividends. Then there's another strand of research which emphasizes ethnic diversity as an impediment to development. Uh, In particular, of relevance to Papua New Guinea, it's often found that when examining differences between countries, countries where many more different languages are spoken uh, tend to have worse development outcomes. As you know, in Papua New Guinea, there's over 800 different languages spoken, but languages vary a lot between different... Linguistic diversity varies a lot between different parts of Papua New Guinea. So you'll find some districts where in colonial times or in pre-colonial times only one language was spoken. You'll find other districts where in pre-colonial times as many as 40 districts were spoken. So, plausibly, that type of ethnic diversity might explain some of the differences in development that we see today. These are the possible explanations Fascinating to test here in Papua New Guinea. The only challenge is getting the data to do the testing. I'm going to speak a little bit about different development outcomes and most of the data that I'll draw upon when I do that will be based on information from the 2000 census, uh, also information from reports from NRI. But then when I look at some of the other variables, the potential explanations, I'm going to be taking advantage of Colin Filer's very hard work uh, in which he's gone through and looked at old... Colonial era maps of different language groups, in which he's gone through and looked at reports from logging companies and mining companies to gauge the level of logging and mining in different developments. And Collins really undertaken this amazing effort to pull all this information together, and that allows me to conduct analysis on the data that he has pulled together. So that's an illuminated table, isn't it? You don't have to be polite. Uh, what I will do, though, is, is speak to you very briefly about how I conducted the analysis, given that we had a, a, an important message in the previous, previous session about being transparent about your methodology. What I did is I took Collins data and I applied a, a method of quantitative analysis called multiple regressions. In particular, I ran uh, multiple regressions using ordinary least, the ordinary least squares approach. And in these regressions, the basic unit of analysis was the district. I ran regressions using three different uh, measures of development as my dependent variables. First, I looked at school enrollment. Second, I looked at under five mortality. And third, I looked at uh, estimates of poverty between different districts. And then, within these multiple regressions, I was able to apply all the other data that Colin had gathered uh, and use them as independent variables potential explanations of the variation in the development uh, indices between the different parts of the country. And the beauty of multiple regressions is that the underlying maths enables you to isolate the effect of one variable from its own relationship with other potential variables and, if you're lucky, ascertain the true relationship between the variable of interest and uh, the dependent variable that you're looking at. Although you probably won't be too interested in knowing, uh, most of my findings were also robust to including provincial level fixed effects. You can ask me what that means in the question time if you want. Most importantly for now though, is to start having a look at some of the findings. First, when we look at our different measures of development, we found that resource endowments really aren't associated with either higher or lower levels of development in general. So you can have all the trees in the world, or you could have had all the trees in the world before you started cutting them down. You can have all the minerals in the world. Uh, These are not the sort of things that seem to have an impact on key elements of development in Papua New Guinea. Um, Similarly, and somewhat surprisingly, colonial history does not seem to have had much of an impact on different levels of development in Papua New Guinea. On the other hand, accessibility has a crucial uh, impact on different levels of development, so, if you live in a district where the road network is better, or simply where it's just easier to get from one part of the, the district to another part, you're almost certainly going to be living in a district where education enrolment rates are higher, infant mortality rates are lower, and poverty levels are lower too. So, that aspect of geography is really important for development in Papua New Guinea. On the other hand, and this is another result that surprised me, it does not seem like the quality of land. Uh, with respect to agriculture, has any clear impact on development or differences in development between different parts of Papua New Guinea. So you could be living in a part of Papua New Guinea uh, with really good soil for growing sweet potato, but there's no guarantee that that will actually mean that you're living in a, develop, uh, a more developed district in Papua New Guinea. And that was something that really surprised me. Then, and these I think are our two most interesting findings. It turns out uh, that be it education enrolment rates, be it under five mortality, or be it poverty uh, as estimated, um, estimates of poverty, turns out there's a really clear relationship between ethno-linguistic diversity uh, in the pre-colonial period and modern levels of development. It turns out that rural parts of Papua New Guinea, where there were more languages spoken in the pre-colonial period, also, uh, parts of Papua New Guinea where today levels of development are lower. And although it's hard to explain exactly why this is the case, uh, it is probably because uh, high levels of ethnic diversity in rural parts of a country impede the sort of cooperation that you need uh, if you're going to try and run a district effectively. Also, and actually this is something I would forgot to uh, mention previously, One other possible cultural difference between different parts of Papua New Guinea that might have an impact on development is uh, just what time the different districts were settled in Papua New Guinea's history. In particular, some uh, uh, development economists have argued that Austronesian cultures are more conducive to development uh, because of their hierarchical nature. Those of you who know uh, the history of pre-colonial Papua New Guinea will know that parts of Papua New Guinea were settled in the great wave of Austronesian migration that swept across Melanesia and then onwards out into Polynesia uh, several thousand years ago. On the other hand, other parts of Papua New Guinea weren't settled by Austronesian people. It turns out, although uh, this finding is robust, it also appalls one of my anthropologist friends, so I think there is uh, still scope to attest it further, um, It turns out that, on average, controlling for other influences, levels of development are higher in Austronesian uh, parts or parts of Papua New Guinea who were settled in the Austronesian wave of migration. So it seems like that might be another cultural influence that has had an important impact on modern-day development in Papua New Guinea. Really, that's all I have to say, which is good. I've got five seconds left, left. Social factors, cooperation, uh, seem to have a big impact on district-level development. Uh, access, accessibility is also crucially important for development. It turns out that colonial history, land quality, logs and mines don't matter that much. Uh, I will underline and emphasise the final point. These are preliminary findings. Uh, myself and my colleagues are working on getting better data, and we won't be entirely confident of our findings until we are able to get our hands on better data. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Terence Wood. Next presenter is Fiona in Indonesia. Uh, Will come and you present your paper, please. It's not working.
5: Not
0: working. Still not working. <laughs> the mic is working. I think that the, thing with the uh, slides are not working. Did you, did you upload it? Yeah, about a hundred times. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want this taken out of my 15 minutes. No. We've we'll, we'll lost <laughs> the time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Practical
1: governance will time.
0: Oh, there you go. That's why we need reform. Good afternoon to all of you. Thank you for being here. I see a lot of um, familiar faces. And I hope there is a familiar face because you may recognize this uh, research uh, that me and my collaborator um, Anthony Swan conducted here at the uh, University of uh, Papua New Guinea. So, what we wanted to do was to study uh, reform and especially leadership and support for reforms in Papua New Guinea. And our, then how we're going about this today um, is to present to you the aims and objectives of this research, why it is significant, um, and also, of course, to explain to you why Papua New Guinea we are going to be explaining to you an experiment that we conducted at the university here, the findings and, of course, the conclusion. Oh. I have to thank um, several of the faculty um, at University of Papua New Guinea for, uh, among, um, among many others, is uh, the Professor Anna Joskin. Who was very kind? Who very kindly um, helped us recruit? And by recruit, we mean strong arm students into participating in this research. So thank you very much. Very welcome. Um, so, what are the aims and objectives of this research? What we are really trying to do is to understand the conditions under which citizens generally provide support for governance reform. Or to and actually and to go beyond that to undertake the role of leadership to generate this broad support for reform, Um, and of course we are particularly interested in the peaceful and constructive collective ways by which this can be conducted because we do know that the emphasis is on ensuring that there is understanding that there is an effort. And that the effort is going to appeal to the leadership. Right. Why is this significant? Well, so far, when you look through the literature on reform governance, there's a lot of emphasis on, as we have seen today, improving governance, which is deliveries, for instance, public goods delivery. We emphasize on government performance. We also in most of this really talks about the demand and the supply of reforms, right? Today's, uh, um, so far, we've actually looked at the demand for. Interestingly enough, in the uh, literature, a lot of the work that has been done is on the supply of reforms. In other words, how does government go about improving itself? improving its performance, improve, improving its public service delivery. And what we want to do today, which I think pulls us together as in all these, across these papers, is we're trying to understand the demand for the reforms. Where exactly does this demand come from? And how can we conceptual, not only conceptualize the demand but also concretize the demand in order to ensure that it occurs? Now, why is this significant? Even as we've seen today, broadly speaking, there is a huge demand for reforms. And even as our own citizens seek reforms, they may actually be contributing to the performance or delivery problems. As an example, an individual's choice may reinforce the performance or service delivery problems at the society or collective level. Sometimes, for instance, the individual is tempted to give side payments, or what sometimes, And I think the side payments here are called grace money. Right. It's easy to give that side payment just for that one time, just for that one instance, right? And, but at a collective level, this actually contributes to Worsening performance delivery as well as government performance, right? And in fact, if every other individual decides to do this, what we have, what we achieve in that outcome, is a weak governance trap. Your social behaviors, right, end up reinforcing poor performance and choices over of of behaviors that are less than ethical. Over, this, over strong performance or over governance reforms. And in fact, governance reforms under these circumstances are bound to fail. So, what we really want to do is understand this, right? We want to understand do individuals, when given a choice, make the choices that say, even I may lose at an individual level, but at a collective level, I am cognizant that society will be disadvantaged and I will not make those choices. So it's actually a very interesting um, um, setup. Um, actually, also very important in the literature, What we, have, we call this the principled principle problem, right? You may have the right principles, but you may be influenced by your environment and your immediate circumstances to make poor choices. right? So our research question is framed as the following. How do individuals choose when faced with a trade-off between outcomes that provide private gains and outcomes that provide collective good? Now, we are interested in studying this for Papua New Guinea for various reasons, but mainly because we have already seen a huge public support for reforms at, in the country, and we have seen this through all the talks that have been going on at the um, at this update. We also know, notwithstanding this public support for reforms, there have been persistent public service delivery problems, and this is actually consistent with many countries and across many countries, which is that there are, for as an example corruption problems, despite millions and billions that have been invested in eradicating or, in fact, tackling corruption, it is it seems to be the hardest and most persistent. It has not even budged in many countries despite decades of efforts. So what we want to do is actually ask if we are given in this situation where the individuals have to choose, will they choose for their individual game, or will they choose for the collective, knowing that there is going to be a clash. Now, what we wanted to do is to have this demonstrated through through experiments. And in these experiments, students play several games. Um, So it was very fun for the students. On top of that, they were paid for playing games. So you can imagine how popular we were for that two weeks. (laughs) We needed, actually, a a, a total of 600 participants. Um, In the end, we managed to get 444. Um, This this means that while we... It's a huge participatory effort at the university. Um, But that, that of course, means that we have the possibility of maybe doing more experiments. Anyway, so in these games, and you'll see the first game, individuals will... uh, The participants individually decide whether they want to pay Greece money to achieve a better outcome, right? And they know that the collective decisions will will affect whether there is a low or a high corruption environment. In other words, their very choices will go into determining the environment within which they will play further games. So they are really responsible for the outcome. Then participants will get to choose after they play the first two games, whether they attend a peaceful forum to try and and, uh, encourage constructive and orderly debate to support reforms. Then they also have a choice. Will they choose to lead or further influence other other participants in this uh, forum? So all in all, there were four games. And the final payout, in other words, their choices will carry costs. They have their initial, every participant is given an initial cost, and every choice they make will determine their individual payout as well as the context within which their final payout occurs. So all their choices carry real monetary gains or loss. It wasn't, so to make the games meaningful. So what did we find? Okay, so these are our findings. In round one, when we have the status quo, in in the status quo, nothing, nothing has changed. We have low detection, one in six chance of being detected if you were to pay Gris money, and your participants can choose to do nothing, pay nothing, and get your standard service delivery, which, by the way, you'll see the payout choices, For doing nothing, you have for for paying nothing and getting uh, standard delivery, you have ten kina. If you pay grease money and you are not detected, you get thirty kina. You only have a one in six chance of being detected. If you pay grease money and if you are detected, you will then receive two kina. (laughs) Right? So they were starting to think. So they can either choose to pay nothing or you pay. 50 toya, to get favorable in, um, outcome. And what we're saying is, is, imagine all of you are playing the game, every one of you are here, if 20% of you pay Greece money, you have then collect, uh, uh, contributed to a highly corrupt environment from which you make future choices. <laughs> I can see several of you grinning now. <laughs> one in six chance, <laughs> right? So in round one, this is our findings. Well, we have basically out of 444, 315 chose to pay nothing. And 124 chose to pay gross money, which is actually not surprising. In the end, you have a 28%. Now, the threshold was 20% of you do this, it contributes to a high corruption environment. So what we have here is a high corruption environment. Now, what we tell you then is, look, in round two, imagine that we have adopted reforms. Now there is a four in six chance of getting detected. The payout is the same, and what we find, of course, is, not surprising, fewer people pay the gross money. Right? because there's a higher chance of de- uh, detection. So what we want, of course, is to go beyond this, like beyond the status quo. What can we do to implement reforms so that you can move from a high corruption to a low corruption environment? Well, what we suggested were several possibilities. One is that you pay one kina just to attend a peaceful forum focused on constructive debate on reforms. We needed to make the threshold high to make sure that people are with, will attend. So the threshold was 50%. If 50% of you attended, it means that there will be a forum, and the forum will be impressive to the leadership for actually adopting reforms. But you have to pay to do this. Right? And we expected that most people would not pay because they would just want to see what happens next before they paid. But to our surprise, the results said a lot of you, over 90 percent, were willing to pay the one kina to attend the reforms, which was fantastic. The forum for reforms. Now, what we thought was maybe one kina was just too low, <laughs> so we jacked it up to. 2.5 kina, well guess what, even then at that point, we have over 87% willing to pay 2.5 kina to attend a forum to discuss constructive um, um, efforts to change. Well, then we said, okay, well, well, you want to signal to your friends through social media that you are attending the, the, the forum. This was actually also surprising. Very few people, far fewer people were willing to do that through social media. They were not going to pay more money to engage social media to encourage participants. But what's also important is when we say, well, will you pay to tell everyone I'm going ahead and I'm going to pay to lead this forum on orderly and constructive debate? we found that quite a lot of people were willing to pay to be a leader, to announce to, the, to all of your friends, I'm going to be one of the leaders at this forum, and I'm going to lead this debate. And I was, the results were very robust, all over the 80%. So what do the numbers tell us? Well, my time is coming up. So, I will tell you, since it's at the statistics part, it will invite your questions. The implications are far more important. That the choices change with monitoring. Sorry, these are the results that I think the implications that you want to know. The choices change when with monitoring and detecting changes. Over 80% will attend a peaceful forum, more than 85% will be willing to undertake leadership roles in such a forum. And very interestingly, participants prefer to lead than to pledge to attend such forum. at least at the University of Papua New Guinea. So I thank you.
1: You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit
3: our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the
2: latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.